Okay, so um, keeping going with our overview of the story of the Bible, we got to the end of 1 Samuel and we got to the stage where Saul, the first king of Israel, had died. So the last action of the book of 1 Samuel is the death of Israel's king. Remember, they wanted a king like the other nations. And that is what they got. They got a king who was high and mighty, tall. Um, and throughout Samuel, various giants fall. Um, first of all, it's the Dagon, you know, his head crushed, the false god. Then it's giant Goliath, the baddie, the Philistine. But by the end of the book, it's Saul, who's an Israelite, but he's lifted up and tall and mighty. And, uh, and trusting in himself, not listening to God's word, but instead going his own way. So he is felled. And throughout this... Um, throughout the second half of the book of, of 1 Samuel we've had David uh, as, a, as a, a, co, kind of a co-lead as it were he's been anointed so he's had the oil poured on his head uh, by the prophet Samuel anointed to be king but he hasn't taken the throne because obviously Saul's still on the throne and so David is he's been Christed or Messiah he is David Messiah David Christ Christ uh, is a Greek word, Messiah is a Hebrew word, but they both mean anointed. It's both about this oil poured on, this commissioning to a particular role. So he, he's anointed, he's the Messiah, but he's not on the throne. And he spends about 10 years doing that. For about 10 years, he lives as anointed prince. You know, he's kind of prince of Wales, I suppose, um, but not, not king. And so today we're going we're gonna to look at his actual reign and that of his son Solomon. So 2 Samuel will be the book that we're spending most of our time in this morning to Samuel and we'll pick it up at, at chapter 5 at 2 Samuel 5 Saul's dead and verse 1 all the tribes of Israel come to David at Hebron and said behold we're your bone and flesh in times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out Sorry. <laughs> and brought us into Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign. So 2 Samuel 5, David actually takes the throne. Now he's the king... Um, not just the king to come, but he is the actual king. 30 years old, um, same age, 30 is the age you have to be to become a priest um, in, the old, in the Old Testament. So just being of the priestly tribe is not enough, you've got to get to 30. 30 is the age, Luke tells us, that Jesus' ministry began. Jesus began his ministry at 30. There's just something interesting going on there, isn't there? Um, uh, particularly when we think about leadership in the church. There is no New Testament age whereby you know, you've got to hit before you become a leader an elder in the church but it's interesting there's something of a pattern um priests david jesus i think joseph was 30 when he got made prime minister of of um egypt anyway there he is he's 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 on the throne and the first thing he does even if you just look at the the chapter titles in your bible chapter six the first thing he does is um oh sorry the first thing he does is capture jerusalem so verse six not chapter six verse six uh, of chapter five the king and his men went to Jerusalem uh, and they capture it. Jerusalem becomes the capital city. And you see what it's called in verse 7. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. Zion's one of those Bible words that we, you know, gets into hymns, doesn't it? And 
Um, no one's ever quite sure what it means. It's just another word for, for Jerusalem. Jerusalem's on a hill, um, and Zion is, is, is more or less synonymous. Mount Zion, Jerusalem. Again, we're back with hills. Um, remember, Garden of Eden was on a hill, on a mountain. Now we've got Mount Zion. So the, the political centre, if you like, is there. He sets up Buckingham Palace um, in, in Jerusalem. But, but the true king, God, is still elsewhere. Remember, he was, the, the, the tabernacle was set up at a place called Shiloh. And that's where it, it's, it's uh, remained. And so in the next chapter, you'll see the headings. David, David brings the ark and the tabernacle to Jerusalem. So the political, the kind of earthly king, and the heavenly king, the religious, they are both going to be found on the same mount, Mount Zion. Uh, and this all climaxes, if you come to chapter 7, in, in um, one of the most important chapters of the Bible. So let me read some of 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in the house of Cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. David has captured Jerusalem. He's built himself a nice palace. But he's saying, look, God's still just living in a tent. This isn't right. I'm in a palace. He's in a tent. Um, let, me, let me build a house for God. And initially, Nathan the prophet says, yeah, sound, sounds right. But, verse 4, that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places, places where I've moved with all the people of Israel. Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel? Saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David. Thus says the Lord of hosts. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went um, and have cut off all your enemies before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I'll appoint a place for my people of Israel. I will plant them so they may dwell in in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I'll give you rest from all your enemies. Okay, so, so far, see what God is saying? Look, I've always been happy in the tent, so stop panicking, David. Uh, He reissues those promises we've seen throughout the Bible. Uh, Look at verse 9. I will um, cut off your enemies. I'll make you a great name, David. Like Abraham, your your name will be great. And there we go. I will appoint a place for my people Israel, so there's going to be a land Okay, they're in the land now. I'll plant them so they may dwell in their own place, be disturbed no more. God's going to bless them. It's not just going to be that they've got a country. He's going to be their God. He's going to be blessing with them. Blessing them, sorry. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and they won't be disturbed. You know, they're, they're going to grow. They're, they're not going to be butchered and carried off and all the rest of it. So that those promises of God's people in God's place with God blessing them, God says, yeah, it's, it's going to happen. Okay, it is happening. It's going to happen. But something new is added in. Verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, 
I'll raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I'll establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I'll discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, who I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all the vision, Nathan spoke to David. What's different from the covenant with Abraham or the covenant with Israel at Sinai? This is a covenant with David. It's called a covenant in Psalm 89 and all sorts of other places. What's different with this covenant is that the, the king is added back in. So it's the same promises, God's people in God's place, with God blessing them. But now there's going to be a, a son of David on the throne. Uh, verse 11, sorry, verse 12. Your offspring will rule. You will have someone on the throne forever. And it's David's offspring, David's son, that is going to build a house for my name, says God, verse 13. Now, there's a kind of, um, uh, there's a, a, a pun going on here. A house, um, a bit like an English, actually. If you talk about the, um, the house of Windsor, or King Charles's house. Um, we could be talking about King Charles's house could be Buckingham Palace, or it could be his house as in his royal house. You know, the, the the house of Windsor, Charles and William and George and whoever else it is in the family. Um, house can mean both kind of dynasty, family dynasty, and could mean physical building. And it's the same in Hebrew. So God is making that that pun. You want to build me a house, a physical house. I'm going to build you a house, a dynasty. So in two Samuel seven, God promises. One of your children, David, is going to rule forever. Um, Verse 16, your throne shall be established forever. And this son of David will, will be also a son of God. Verse 14, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Put on your sheets there a little, little um, table. This is the third time someone in the Bible has had the privilege of being called the son of God. Adam was the first one. But as we know, he committed that spiritual adultery, broke and um, broke the covenant, took the fruit, turned away to, uh, from the Lord God. Israel, out of Israel, I've called my son. Israel is my son, God said. The, the nation uh, was uh, called God's son, uh, particularly in the, in the Exodus but what do they do? Well, they turn away. They turn to the golden calf. They turn to idols. And now David and David's heirs are going to be called God's sons. So it, when it says God's sons here, it doesn't mean um, divine, like Jesus divine, the second verse of the Trinity. It's a title. Okay, it's a title. Now, obviously, the fulfillment of it is Jesus, who is both God's son in terms of the second verse of the Trinity, God the son eternally, and also Jesus in a second way is God's son, in the sense that he is the descendant of David who is going to rule, rule, rule forever. So he's son in two ways, if you like. But the sort of first reference, I suppose, is uh, to the, the king having the title son of God. So all the same promises continue, but now there's going to be a king and he's going to be a descendant of David who's always going to be on the throne. Uh, and so David is, David's full of gratitude. It's a great big prayer of thanks. Uh, and initially it sort of seems to go well. But unsurprisingly, perhaps, given what we've seen about Adam, the son of God, and Israel, the son of God, David, the son of God, um, soon goes wrong too. Most famously, most spectacularly, 
just a few chapters later, 2 Samuel 11, with Bathsheba. Uh, he should have gone out to war, but he, he stays home. He's looking out the window. He sees this woman, Bathsheba, bathing. And um, it's very sort of Adam-like. Um, he saw the woman was beautiful, and he, he took her. Uh, she's another man's wife, uh, married to this guy Uriah. He then thinks, oh, "I'm going to get, you know, I'm going to get busted. I'm going to get caught out here. Um, Bathsheba's going to get pregnant, and everyone's going to know my sin." So he tries to get Uriah home from the battle and say, "Why don't you go and spend a night with Bathsheba? You know, go on, have a night." And, and Uriah's saying, "No, no, my troops they don't get to spend their night with the wives, so I'm not going to either." Um, and he sleeps in the doorway instead. And David's. Oh, what am I going to do now? What do we do? So then he arranges for Uriah to be sent into the kind of the suicide mission. Gets his general to put Uriah right where the fighting's the most intense, and then draw back so that Uriah gets killed. So essentially, he arranges Uriah's uh, murder. Uh, and so even even David, even seeming, you know, seemingly great David, even he ultimately is an adulterous son. And, and his reign, I mean, he, he, there's, what happens in the second half of the book of 2 Samuel is that having, having stolen someone else's wife, having invaded, as it were, the household of Uriah, there's the, the sort of punishment is total discord in his own house. So he, um, uh, he has a son with Bathsheba um, who instantly dies. And then he has another son, Solomon. He's going to be the one who takes the throne. We'll look at him in a moment. But his other son, Absalom, um, rebels uh, and so there's, you know, David's driven off the throne for a while there's kind of civil war um, Absalom and Am- Ammon, Amnon another son they end up fighting and both end up dead a uh, final son Adonijah also rebels he ends up dead too it's total chaos um, so David's messing with Uriah's house leads to, to chaos in his own house and so the, the end of the book of 2 Samuel well it's a strange end really come right to the end 2 Samuel 24 David's old now. <coughs> 2 Samuel 24. Um, do, you remember, do you remember this theme throughout 1 Samuel we saw last week? 1 and 2 Samuel are the same book, really. We, we split them up, but they're basically the same book. This theme of don't trust in earthly power, don't trust in chariots and horses, don't trust in the high and mighty, trust in the name of the Lord. David, at the end of the book, takes a census. He counts all the fighting men. And it's a kind of symbol of him wanting, let's see how many men we've got. Let's see how kind of um, strong we are. It's a symbol of him trusting in himself, uh, in in earthly power rather than uh, in God. And God um, is angry. Uh, So verse 10, let's pick it up, verse 10. David's heart struck him after he'd numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I've done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I've done very foolishly. He realises he's messed up. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So there's three punishments you can choose between. Very strange story, says God. So verse 13, Gad came to David and told him and said to him you can choose shall three years of famine come to you in your land or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you or shall there be three days pestilence plague 
in your land. Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. There you go. Do you want three years of famine, three months where you've got to run away and hide and your enemies chase you, or three days of plague? Then David said to Gad, I'm in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. Of man. David said, look, essentially choosing the third option. Okay, let's deal with God direct. Rather than enemies being raised up, rather than falling in the heads of man, man it, I, I think probably what's going on there is um, David is saying, well, I know the Lord is merciful in a way that human beings aren't, so perhaps his mercy will, will win through. Um, I think that's why he's saying, uh, what he's saying at the end of verse 14, his mercy is great. <coughs> so the, the plague falls. Uh, and from Dan to Bishiba, it um, down in the top, Beersheba in the south of the country, it's called, like from Land's End to John of Groats. 70,000 men die. And when this angel of the Lord, remember the angel of the Lord struck the Egyptians down at the Passover? When the angel of the Lord stretched out his hand towards Jerusalem, gets to Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented, so his mercy does kick in, and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It's enough, now stay your hand, hold back. And the angel was at this threshing floor, this kind of you know, weak threshing floor of, uh, of Aruna, the Jebusite. Um, all very odd, but, but look how David responds. Uh, verse 17, behold, I have sinned and done wickedly, but these sheep, the people, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. T- take me, not, not them, is what he says. So here's the angel sword drawn on the threshing floor uh, of Araba. David says, take me, not, not them. And it's there that the plague is, is stopped. And the book ends seemingly pretty kind of anticlimactically with David buying that, that threshing floor. Okay, that kind of wheat threshing uh, floor. And it, it seems a bizarre way to end a book full of kind of huge stories of David and Goliath and you know beating the Philistines all that kind of thing but this place is going to be the place where the temple is built it is the threshing floor uh, of uh, Aruna the Jebusite that becomes the site of the temple the place where God stayed his hand stopped judging the place where the king offered his life in place of his people and so the book ends yeah the book ends Again, seemingly sort of fairly strangely. Uh, what I want to do is do some discussion, but I just want to touch on Solomon before we do that because, um, yeah, there's some funny things going on there. Let's just pause there. Anyone ask any questions at this stage? Just trying to get through some of the story so we've got the story in our minds. Um, we'll do the kind of so what in a mo. Happy. Okay, so there's David. He's on the throne. He's now got this threshing floor, which is going to be the place where the house of God is going to be built. But it's not going to be David who buys, who, who builds it. So in 1 Kings, just literally the next book, um, we see David is, uh, is old. Uh, and he, he appoints Solomon. He has this son with Bathsheba, Solomon. Um, Solomon is, is the name Shalom, which means peace. He's the, he's the, the, the son of peace. And out of all David's children, it's going to be Solomon, who's the, the youngest, the least in the eyes of the world. But he's going to be the one who takes the throne. 
And if you know anything of the story of Solomon, as, he, as David dies in chapter 2 and Solomon takes the throne, God comes to him and says, you know, what do you want? It's almost an Aladdin genie type story. What, what do you want? And Solomon says, what I really want is wisdom. Give me wisdom. And God's so pleased with him, he says, yeah, you'll have wisdom, but you'll have even more than that. Um, I'm going to bless you with um, great riches, great prosperity, a great kingdom. Um, what, what in, in, in 3 verse 9, what Solomon, excuse me, hiccups, uh, what, Solomon asks, uh, what, asks, <laughs> what Solomon asked for is what Adam grasped for, which is knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil. Chapter 3, verse 9. Give your servant, therefore, he says to God, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who's able to govern this, this your great people? He asked to be given wisdom. He doesn't snatch it. So this knowledge of good and evil, this understanding of right and wrong, it's a sort of symbol of maturity and wisdom. Adam snatched it when he was told you can't have it yet. Solomon asked for it and God grants it. He's going to be a truly kind of a true Adam, a better Adam. And that indeed is, is played out in um, how he's described. So he is the incredibly wise king. Look at 1, Samuel, sorry, 1 Kings 4. Um, he's blessed. Chapter, sorry, verse 20 and 21. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. So all those promises to Abraham, you'll be as many as the, the, the grains of sand on the beach. There they are, eating and drinking. And Solomon ruled over all the land from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. And they, the nations, bring tribute uh, to Solomon. And he is, he is like, so he's ruling, he's blessed, he's wise. He is like a, a, a sort of a true and better Adam. So at the end of um, the, the chapter, verse 33, he spoke of trees from the cedar that's in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And all the nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And from all the kings of the earth who heard from his wisdom. He, he understands the world. You know, he's got dominion. Um, so when he writes his proverbs, you know, he understands about ants and locusts and spiders and all the rest of it. And plants. And his, his wisdom isn't just, I don't know, sort of super spiritual ethereal stuff. Um, it is an understanding of how to rule well, um, as Adam was meant to do in the first place. And therefore, the whole world is the whole world is blessed. Uh, eventually, you might know the story: the, the Queen of Sheba comes um, and just marvels at his wisdom. Everybody is gaining; everyone is being blessed because of Solomon's uh, wisdom. And his main achievement, really, I suppose, the thing before his fall, the thing he's most famous for, is he does build the temple. Uh, so, in chapter six, the temple is built. Solomon, Shalom, the peace man, he, he, his hands aren't bloodied by war like his father's. Um, that's ultimately why David, we're told, wasn't allowed to build. But he is a man of peace. So he does build the house for God. And it's, it's, it's unsurprisingly, hopefully, by this age, it's, it's like a little Eden again, like a little Garden of Eden. So chapter 6, verse 29, around all the walls of the house, he carved engraved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers. Uh, if you read the whole thing, the, the whole temple is carved with kind of garden imagery, palm trees blossoms all sorts of things and cherubim guard it just like they did the entrance to the garden of eden here is god's presence again symbolically and here again god comes to dwell in the great dedication chapter which is a couple of chapters later chapter eight 
um, the glory cloud that's led them through the desert, the fiery cloudy pillar, comes and rests in the centre of this temple. Uh, God moves in, as it were, into the most holy place. The temple is structured just like the tabernacle was, three rooms, a central room, the most, which is square, which is the most holy place, where God dwells and nobody can go in. Uh, the next room out, the holy place, where the priests go to do their ministry, and then the next room out, which is the, kind of the, the main room, as it were, uh, where the ordinary people can go. So Solomon's reign seems to hit a climax. We've got, we've got a renewed Eden. We've got a king who understands how to rule. Uh, we've got God's people, as many as the stars in the sky or the, the sand on the beach, um, in a land at peace, under the king of peace. Seems that we've got the end, to the end of the Bible story. Um, um, we know we haven't. But at the time, it, maybe this is it. A son of David who has built a house for my name. The nations are coming. All is at peace. We're eating and drinking and happy. So, um, with that in mind, what we're going to do in groups now. Sorry, it's a bit of a kind of late discussion and a long monologue. But in groups, I put some verses down there for you to look at. Um, if you read the Deuteronomy passage, and then perhaps one person on the table look up each of those verses, the Guan Kings ones. Uh, we're going to look at what goes wrong. So what goes wrong with Solomon's reign? What's the warning to us? And, and in what ways can you see Solomon pointing forward to Jesus? Not just in those verses, but in what we've talked about. Um, there's way more than one right answer to that. Ignore the kingdom torn bit. That's just a, a final thing at the end. Over to you. Okay. We ought to draw things towards a close. Um, we won't go through all the questions. Hopefully you can see that the parallel Deuteronomy sets up what a king's meant to be like. Um, and Solomon basically gold, girls, guns. He goes for all of them um, in massive excess. Let, let's just... A uh, few thoughts. How does Solomon point forward to Jesus? Okay, so one of the things a few people have said to me in the Esther series is I didn't realise how much Jesus was in Esther, basically. Um, but the whole Old Testament points forward to Jesus. So wherever you're reading the Bible, it is ultimately about Jesus. So some ideas. How would you... How do we see Jesus in, in Solomon? Someone be brave. Okay. Solomon builds the house of God. Jesus comes and says, I am the temple. Thank you. Nice one. Yep. Yep. Great. You know, the, the, the first son of David was Solomon. You know, your, your son <coughs> will build a house, but the, the true son will reign forever. Jesus. Yep. Lovely. Nations come for blessing. All nations come to Christ, King of all nations. Um, there's, there's loads you might do. Um, sometimes sometimes the way you do it is, is, is almost kind of the opposite. So, you know, unfaithful, faithful, that kind of thing. So you, you don't always have to, it doesn't always have to be a, um, uh, what do you call it, lesser to greater. Sometimes it's a contrast thing. Um, uh, Solomon unfaithful with many wives Jesus faithful to his one bride and blah 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 that kind of thing so 
There's always, there's always so much to see in, in the Old Testament. Um, as we close, 1 Kings 11, because of this turning from the Lord, so ultimately that he marries so many women and has so many concubines that his, his wives draw him to other gods. Sometimes people you know, ask that question, can you give me a Bible verse that says don't marry somebody who's not a Christian? Um, frankly, you can, but um, this is also a story that, that gives an example of it. Um, it's not a race thing, it's a religious thing. He's drawn aside, he worships other gods, um, such that it's a power of marriage and relationships that we tend to get drawn towards, drawn away from Christ by binding ourselves to someone who is um, not a believer. Um, 1 Kings 11, verse 9. The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning the thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice, you've not kept my covenant and my statutes that I've commanded you. I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. Okay, so your your kingdom will be taken away from you and given to somebody who works for you. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I won't do it in your days, but I'll tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear all the kingdom away, but I'll give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I've chosen. So that the, it's a bit like the, the ice, this is a perfect sheet of ice. It looked like, looked like everything was wonderful with Solomon, didn't it? But the, 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 the pane of glass has been tapped, the sheet of ice has been tapped, the crack has just been, and it's going to begin to split. And what we'll see next week in the rest of Kings is that that crack expands, 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 shatters the kingdom, um, shatters the peace, shatters the blessing, um, and the curse will fall. Let's wrap up there. Let me pray. And we'll go next door. Father in heaven. Uh, we are certainly no wiser than Solomon. Um, and so we uh, pray for your grace to us um, that uh, you give us hearts that are able to discern good and evil and choose the good. And uh, we praise you ultimately that we're saved by another king, not by Solomon, but by the, Jesus, the, the king of peace, the prince of peace. Thank you that he never turned aside, never betrayed you, and that no one was able to uh, tempt him um, from full obedience to you. Uh, and so we entrust ourselves and the service to you this morning in his name and ask that in him you will again meet and bless us. Father, be kind to us, therefore, in his name we ask. Amen.